From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. I think it's okay to talk about the subjectivity of truth and not have it be a negative thing. Uh, I think if we talk about truth as a thing that's just fact or fiction and true and false in this binary, we abdicate our responsibility that we are shaping truth together collectively at any given moment. That's Derek Delgaudio. He's an interdisciplinary artist, mentalist, and author of the new book, A Moral Man, A True Story and Other Lies. He's also the creator and star of the theatrical production, In and of Itself, which was adapted by filmmaker Frank Oz into a Hulu special in January. On April 17th, I spoke with Derek about his new book for the Miami Book Fair, and we covered a lot of ground. We talk about keeping secrets, practicing magic, and what it means to be a moral person. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Support for this podcast comes from Washington Wise, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington affect your portfolio and your money every day. But what policy changes should investors be watching? Washington Wise is an original podcast for investors from Charles Schwab. The show unpacks the stories making news in Washington and how they may affect your finances and investments. Listen today at schwab.com slash Washington Wise. That's schwab.com slash Washington Wise. I'm Dahlia Lithwick, and I'm host of Amicus, Slate's podcast about the law and the U.S. Supreme Court. We are shifting into high gear, coming at you weekly with the context you need to understand the rapidly changing legal landscape. The many trials of Donald J. Trump, judicial ethics, arguments and opinions at SCOTUS. We are tackling the big legal news with clarity and insight every single week. New Amicus episodes every Saturday, wherever you listen. So guess what, folks? This week... The Barrara family is away on vacation. First family vacation of any sort since before the pandemic. And leading up to the show, the team pulled together some evergreen questions that I've gotten over the months and years, not necessarily rooted in the news. And I thought I'd answer some of those today. Here's a question that's been asked from time to time. What have you learned about the art of interviewing that you didn't know before you started hosting Stay Tuned? So that's, that's an interesting question, and I, I've thought about it, and I'll make two points. So there are various types of interviews you do when you're a prosecutor, when you're a lawyer. Mostly what you see on television is the kind of, it's not really an interview, but it's an examination, whether a direct examination or a cross-examination in a court of law. And what is the principle that everyone always talks about, that a good lawyer never asks a question the lawyer doesn't already know the answer to? And that's a fine principle, and it makes sense in a court of law when you have a particular goal whether you're on the prosecution side or the defense side, to argue your case through the witnesses or by cross-examination of the witnesses and the undermining of the witnesses to get the jury to believe your version of the facts and your version of events. And so it's a very orchestrated type of process designed for some end, not necessarily sort of general edification or entertainment or enlightening, but to prove your case. Obviously, interviewing on State Tuned is very, is very different from that. And what I've learned is, The most interesting interviews that I think I experience, and hopefully by extension, the listeners experience, are interviews where there are moments when neither I nor the listeners really expected the answer that's given, right? So it's the the opposite of the principle in the courtroom. 
And often the best questions I can ask are the ones where I, I don't really know the answer because it's not in the record anywhere. It's not in their memoir. It's not in their writings. It's not in profiles of them. But it's a truly interesting point about them or their work or their character that I want to get the answer to. And maybe they've not been asked the question before. Maybe they've not wanted to answer the question before. But those moments of surprise, I find fascinating and I think important to the art of interviewing. The second thing I will say, which is particular to the pandemic, you know, I have not interviewed anyone in person in about 16 months. In the before times, I would interview people remotely and we couldn't see each other. But by and large, we tried to make sure that people were in studio. At the beginning, you know, I interviewed people in other parts of the country, in DC and in LA, and I would fly out there because I thought the importance of the dynamic of being in the same room as the person you're interviewing, to have sort of chit-chat before the interview, to make eye contact, to find moments when you can interrupt without being rude, which is easier to do in person than it is remotely when you're just on audio. So I was a little bit apprehensive about the prospect of indefinitely doing interviews only by audio. And what I've discovered is there's a certain liberation there. And there's a certain ability to conduct an interview with some intensity and focus and sensitivity when you don't have the distraction of the other human being sitting across from you. You don't have to worry and be distracted by whether or not you're making enough eye contact. You don't have to worry and be distracted thinking they didn't like the question. I mean, those cues are sometimes nice to have, but it's also nice in a way, and I'm sure I'll love getting back to interviewing people in person again, but I'm just reflecting on it in this moment since you asked the question. When I only have the sound of the person's voice in my ears, and it's very intimate, and none of all the other stuff, you know, the tableau of the room and the person, when I just have that person's words in my ears, I think I listen better. I think I hear the answers better. And I think I can make my follow-up questions more focused and relevant and better. That's not to say that I want to forever interview people remotely and with audio only. I think there's a great dynamic and back and forth. When someone is in person, I think it's easier to make jokes. I think it's easier to put a person at ease when you're in the same room with them. But my apprehensiveness about doing these things audio only has dissipated. Here's a question about leadership. Do you think it's important for leaders to be kind? Or is it ultimately more important to be effective? So I've been talking about leadership for years and years, given a lot of speeches on it, written about it, thought about it, and obviously, you know, been a leader of small and large organizations. And I think that's a false choice. I think that kind leaders are ultimately the most effective leaders. It's not one or the other. Now you can have, you can have a scary leader who is brutal and mean and tough in ways that are the antithesis of kindness and the institution can do well and it can make money or it can succeed or it can improve. But I think the full potential of an institution is never realized unless the leaders are kind. You know, I was often fond of, of saying when I talked about these issues to groups, that you want to be the kind of leader that your people are willing to take a bullet for, rather than one they fantasize about putting a bullet in. <laughs> I also used to quote from Eisenhower, and I'll mangle it because I don't have it in front of me, but I'm paraphrasing. And remember, Eisenhower was no shrinking violet. I believe he was a general, and then he was a two-term president of the United States. So here's a person who was commander-in-chief after having been a general in the armed forces, who says, you know, you don't lead people by hitting them over the head. That's not leadership. That's assault. So I think there's also a confusion people have between being kind and being strong and being tough. Those are not at odds with each other either. You can be very, very strong and very, very firm and still be kind to the people around you. 
the flip side of leadership is what? Followership. If you're a leader, you want people to follow you. And you want them to follow you because they respect you. And because they know you have their back. And they know you care about them, not just as people who are in the organization doing the work that they do, but as people. And you have an interest in their advancement. And followers know that. And people in any organization or agency will give their best work to folks who they think care about them. By the way, that doesn't mean no criticism. That doesn't mean you give false praise. That doesn't mean you pat everyone on the back all the time. What it means is that you give constructive feedback and you don't take gratuitous aim at people if they've made a mistake. Look, and I look back to my own experience for years and years with managers, supervisors, bosses, and the people I worked the hardest for, the people I stayed up late for and gave my all for, were not people that I was scared of, not people who I thought would get mad at me or yell at me if I didn't do a perfect job, but people who I knew cared about me and would be disappointed if I didn't give it my best and didn't do my best work. And I think that's an important thing to remember. This is a question I've gotten a lot over the years. When you were hiring young prosecutors at SDNY, how did you assess whether or not a candidate had integrity? What were some of the things you looked for? So obviously there are a lot of basic things you look for. You want to make sure that they're smart. You want to make sure that they can write well. You want to make sure that they present well when they're speaking, that they can argue in court. You want all those things, right? You want to make sure that they got good grades. And we got some amazing applications from some of the most credentialed people in the country. But that wasn't enough. The most important thing goes to the question you're asking, whether the person has integrity and judgment, a word that's not in the question, but I think sums up things like integrity and a lot of other qualities that are central to doing a job, any job, certainly, but absolutely central to doing a job where you have so much power over people's lives and livelihoods, particularly at a young age. And many of the entering prosecutors at SDNY and other U.S. attorney's offices and DA's offices are fairly young and have not had a lot of life experience. So there's no substitute for integrity and judgment. By the time a candidate got to me, I was pretty confident that they had you know, skills and craft and intelligence and writing ability and speaking ability. And so the most important thing was making sure that the person had the right character, fitness, and judgment to undertake this huge responsibility of being a prosecutor and exercising discretion with wisdom and restraint often. With respect to integrity, you know, one of the things we always did not just in the interview process, but in the vetting process, was to talk to people who would work with that person, not just supervisors necessarily, but also sometimes their peers, if that was appropriate. And if we got any whiff that someone had ever misrepresented something to the court or done something underhanded or cut a corner, we would not take a chance on that person. Because the most important thing to any prosecutor's office or public lawyer's office is that you do things in the right way for the right reasons all the time. There was one thing I would ask people who applied to be criminal prosecutors in my office, and I've mentioned this over the years, I would say to that person, I think sometimes they were surprised to hear the question. I'd say, look, if you get this job, how are you going to feel knowing that by definition, if you do your job correctly, that you will in many ways arguably be the proximate cause for many human beings going to prison for long periods of time? Now, that's not quite a fair way of putting it necessarily, but I asked that question in that sharp language for a reason. And every once in a while, you would get someone who would answer the question a little too quickly and say, I have no problem with that. If they committed a crime, they should do the time. There's some version of that. And you might be surprised to hear that we didn't hire those people. I didn't want to hire that person. Because to me, it indicated a level of immaturity and single-mindedness. And it made me think that they 
didn't understand the job correctly because the job of a prosecutor is not to send people to prison, is not to get convictions, not to put bad guys away. That's a byproduct of what the job really is. And the, the job is to do justice and do the right thing. And sometimes that means charging people. Sometimes it means not charging people. You want folks in the prosecutor's office who understand that it's a heavy responsibility and it's natural not to feel great all the time at the moment of sentencing when a human being, because the law demands it and requires it, goes to prison for a long period of time and their family is there, a family who might rely on that person. It's an important job. It requires prosecutors to do the job and judges and defense lawyers and other folks too. But people who are too eager to prosecute for the purpose of sending someone away and didn't appreciate the gravity of that responsibility, we didn't hire. Stay tuned. There's more coming up after this. Support for Stay Tuned comes from Mint Mobile. If there's one thing that all former U.S. attorneys for the Southern District of New York have in common, it's that we love a good sauce. It's even rumored, although I can't fact check this, that Ogden Hoffman, who served in the position from 1841 to 1845, never ate a meal dry. Now you're probably asking, what does sauce have to do with my cell phone bill? It's because Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell all of their wireless services online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. For a limited time, their premium wireless plans are just $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. To get the new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just $15 a month, you can go to mintmobile.com preet. That's mintmobile.com preet. Cut your wireless bill to $15 a month at mintmobile.com preet. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on an unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. My guest this week is Derek Delgaudio. He's the author of the recent memoir, A Moral Man, A True Story, and other lies. It's both a personal telling of his own life stories and a meditation on philosophy, morality, and the complexities of truth. A performer, artist, and mentalist, Delgadio's craft is hard to explain, so I'll let him do it. It's a pleasure to meet you. You too, sir. Are you doing okay? I'm doing I'm doing well. I'm I'm excited to talk to you. Congratulations on the book. It's it's um for those of you who haven't read it yet, you, you really need to pick it up. It's entertaining, it's page turning, it's storytelling, and there's a good bit of poignance, philosophy. A lot of your book is about secrets. Yeah. And the nature of secrets and the effects of secrets. That's one of the most fascinating themes in the entire book. Do do you have an obsession with the idea of secrets? I did without knowing it. I collected secrets the way someone might collect baseball cards um, when I was younger. That that became my hobby, my obsession was collecting secrets and finding people who kept secrets and uh, convincing them to to you know reveal them to me and let me carry them for them for a while. And so I uh, I, I did develop sort of an obsession with with secrets, but not with the notion of secrecy until much later. I didn't I didn't you know understand what I was doing. I was just doing it. 
are secrets necessary for people? Do we all have a need for it or? Yeah, I think that we use them to protect ourselves or to guard us from others. And yeah, I think that it's, it's necessary to have some sort of level of secrecy in our lives to get through this world. I mean, I could be wrong. Maybe there's someone who's... So that's what's very so complicated and, and, and so interesting about your meditation on this. So on the one hand, you make the point through stories and, and you know, straight prose that secrets are important and they help us. On the other hand, you talk about the toxic effects of secrecy. Sure. And you talk about, and you say in your book at the beginning of a chapter, you know, a secret can be used as a shield to shield us from pain and protect us from harm, or it can act as a barrier built to exclude and oppress those deemed unworthy of access. What do you mean? That's, that sounds very profound. What do you mean by that? You know, I think that we all have an, a, a world within us, or we, we have a world that we inhabit, and who, who we choose to let into that world it is in part what we reveal to them and, and how, how much we want to let someone into the world that, that we live in depends on how much we, we choose to conceal and reveal. And so there, we have to choose carefully. I'm going to give this a shot. Is there a secret you want to tell us? It's just you and me. Sure. Um, okay. I was un- unexpected that you were going to agree, but okay. No, I mean, why not? Right. Tell us something. Tell us something we don't know that nobody knows. Uh, when I was, 12 or 13 years old, I suffered what's called a testicular torsion, which is uh, a very painful medical condition uh, that uh, is probably the most painful experience of my life. Never talked about it because it felt there's no real need to, but now, now you know. Wow. It's not, I was not expecting that. By the way, this is not pre-planned. We didn't, we've never <laughs> met, as, as sometimes lawyers will do at the beginning of a cross-examination, which this is not. You and I have never met before, sir. Is that correct? That is correct. You and I have never spoken before. Is that correct? That is correct. And you and I have not prepared in any way this testimony slash conversation. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay. Oddly, oddly <laughs> uh, it sounds like the preamble for being a lawyer is very similar to a magician bringing someone up on stage. We've right. Never, no, that's true. Totally. Is that correct, sir? You know, like the, These are the same questions that it's, one might ask before having someone uh, pick a card. Because people are skeptical when they're about to see something that goes the way that either the magician, the conjurer, or the lawyer wants it to go, people have a healthy skepticism of whether or not that's rehearsed. They're being tricked. Sure. Agendas. Yes. That brings to mind a story you tell in the book about your mom. And I want to ask you mm, yeah. a couple of questions about your mom. And you and But adults do have some experience of what seems normal and natural, what natural movement is. Yes. And you tell this great story after you've spent, you know, hours and hours and hours and hours, unbeknownst to your mom, uh, that you were practicing sleight of hand. Mm-hmm. And you finally, I think she's taking a shower and you, or she's drying her hair. Yeah. And and you knock on the door and you're bothering your mom. She's like, can I dry my hair? And you want to show her your trick. Yeah. And I think it was moving a coin from one hand to the other. And you're very proud of yourself and you were very young. And she immediately says, much to your dismay, well, it's in the other, it's in the other hand. Right. Was she using childlike abilities of observation? What What was going on? No, there? I wasn't very good. Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, I was just like I was just not. I was un. I was. This was before I understood uh, natural actions versus unnatural actions and how to simulate natural actions. I was. I was being awkward in my mannerisms, and therefore she was able to sort <clears throat> what was what was happening, uh, which is different than someone being very good and talented and a kid being able to see through it. Yeah. What I loved is how you describe, I mean, all this is new to me. I was very fascinating. Um, yeah. 
that one of the reasons why you weren't as good as you wanted to be was the way you practiced. And one of the ways you practiced was you're looking in a mirror. Yes. When you look in the mirror to watch yourself, you're looking at your hands. Yes. And so you're seeing yourself. And then the owner of this magic store, we used to, and I want to talk about the magic store too, if we have time, because we could do this for three hours. Sure. Gave you a video camera. So yeah. you, in the moment, you were just performing for the imaginary audience. And then later you could assess the naturalness of your movements. How much of a difference did that make? Well, uh, a big difference in terms of self-deception. Um, the, the thing about mirror practices is you, you, after a while, your brain starts to do some of the work subconsciously for you. And it starts to um, edit out the discrepancies or things that aren't, uh, that, that make it look unconvincing. And so uh, it's in real time and it's just, you know, you, people either uh, decide on certain angles unintentionally or they blink at the right time unintentionally. And these are, these are habits that will carry on after you walk away from the mirror. And so, yeah, you need to remove yourself from seeing it at the moment. And a video camera was, was one way to do that. Can you give folks a sense of how much time you spent to do, you know, a simple oh. card, card trick? Well, because it boggled my mind. I mean, you, you know that to become a good pitcher or, you know, a good athlete in certain areas, you know, some people cite the 10,000 hours of practice yeah. makes you, you know, really excellent. It seems like a lot more than that for <laughs> what you do, right? It is. Yeah. Uh, when that, when that number came out, which was that, was that Malcolm Gladwell that made that I think it might've been, I, yeah. I don't remember. I, I, it was kind of laughable to me. <laughs> so it was right. a small number compared to what I, what I had tallied up. No, I, I was a bit obsessive. I mean, I, I, I woke up and fell asleep with cards in my hand. I would go through- at, at what age? Tell people at what age that was. I really started to ramp things up at like 14. Uh, like 12 and 13, it was, it was finding my way into it. And then 15, when I transitioned going into high school, I mean, I dropped out of high school my, my freshman year and was just it was all I did every single day was practice. And it was I practiced the way that I imagined like, you know, martial artists, you know, in, in films where they'd go out into the forest and punch a tree practice. I was very determined uh, to become whatever imagined version of the best was in my head at that time. Pardon me for saying it this way. Yeah. What's crazy about that, and one of the most interesting things about your arc that people who haven't read the book won't appreciate, is that normally you would think, whether it's the athlete or doing what you do, you're practicing, you're practicing, you're practicing, you're becoming perfect at it. You show your mom your trick. But the whole idea is to be able to perform that publicly and show an audience of people, look, look what I learned, look what I can do. Yeah. And that was not the case with you. In fact, you'd seem to have no interest in performing. You just wanted to perfect the trick or the sleight of hand. In fact, you say at one point in the book, in this line, there are many lines in the book that just have, have stayed with me. You say, because you, you have a discussion with the owner of the magic shop where you say, you know, I, I, don't want, I don't want to do it in front of people. He's like, why the hell not? That's the whole point. And you say, quote, concealing my talents was the performance, end quote. What does that mean? Well, for me, the mark of it being successful was a perfect simulation of real life. And if it's a perfect simulation of, of natural actions and of life itself, there is, there is no distinction between the ordinary and the extraordinary. It just is what it is. And in performances of magic, uh, it is all about 
the perception of extraordinary, something extraordinary occurred. And to me, that was pointing to the secrets and pointing to the craft. And for me, it was all about hiding the craft and hiding myself. I, I just didn't have any interest in showing off. Would you consider yourself to be part of an industry? And, and if so, whatever the category of, because some of the words don't really work. Magician doesn't really work. Yeah. I don't know if conjurer works, deceiver. Yeah. So I, I leave it to you to describe this yeah. special talent that you have. No, um, I don't. I don't. I don't think I'm part of any industry. So that, that's maybe obvious. My question: Are there other? Have you found that you are unusual in this field of having been somebody who, at the outset at least, didn't want to perform? Uh, the performing part. Uh, I have met other people who have no interest in performing, but maybe not quite to this extent or maybe not for the same reasons. Um, it was never, uh, a lot of the people I know who aren't interested in performing are uh, introverts and they're just interested in the analytical parts. I actually wasn't opposed to performing in any other context. I wasn't opposed to getting on a stage and talking to people. Yes, and you talk about that. So, this is another thing I found was yeah. fascinating, right? Um, let me just ask you, there was some back and forth between you and other people about this idea of not wanting to perform and you hadn't really mastered it. You could do the trick, but maybe not have this. And yeah. so you, you did drama. Yes. Yeah, and you said an odd thing. So you're new at drama mm -hmm. and you said you felt no nervousness getting on the stage doing that other thing. Yeah. But when you tried to do the thing at which you had become expert to some degree, you did feel nerves. Explain that. I think that I had, you know, getting getting on stage and being in a play and pretending to be someone else, for me, there's no stakes in that because I'm not that person. It's, a, it's an imaginary circumstance and it's it's theater. But when you're presenting as yourself and you have tied so much of who you are to this thing, the stakes seem much higher. And I think that it's just the, there's a lot more in it. But also the context is so different in that when you're for some reason, the deception of theater or the deception of art in general, uh, films is is an accepted sort of deception that we just we go with it. We're we're okay with that with being right. taken. You, su you suspend disbelief when it's fiction. Yeah, but when it's someone, uh, you know, uh, trying to pull the wool over your eyes uh, or something like that, it, there's a different uh, there's just a different social contract there. And I was always very uncomfortable with the perception of that contract. I, I you know, and naturally it's, it's, there's a lot of power involved of like, I know something you don't know, I'm going to display that now. And it's a kind of a, a, a challenge in that sense. And I was never interested in that challenge aspect of it. And for me, it was not about that. And I couldn't, I couldn't understand how to make it not about that. It was, for me, it was just, that's all it ever was. And that's all anyone ever saw it as. And so that's all it ever be. So, so to me, and I don't know how other people react to different and what feedback you've gotten from people. One of the most stunning things to me in the book was this. So you have this lead up mm -hmm. with this person who's in the field, the general field named Grayson. Yeah. Who, as I understand it, is one of the preeminent conjurers, deceivers ever. Yeah. And you had occasion as a, as a, basically a kid to meet him at a, in a hotel lobby. It's a great story. And you impress him because you do a thing that he's never seen anybody else able to do. And he's obviously um, someone you, uh, you know, either aspired to be yeah. or respected tremendously. And it was a huge break for you to meet this guy, mm -hmm. Grayson, and for him to spend, I think, when you two or three hours with you, teaching you some stuff, mentoring you. And that's a lovely sort of story that you see 
Karate Kid and other stories. But then you go see his performance. I forget how long later it was. Yeah. And so here's a guy you somewhat place on a pedestal who does these things that you aspired to do. And a simple thing happens in his performance. Uh, this this real this is the thing that struck me the most, uh, uh, maybe of anything in the book. Wow! And you're watching, and I don't know if the other people have this reaction. You're watching him, and he and he he does some some trick with a little wooden box, and he tells a story about the little wooden box, and he says, "My father gave this to me before he died." And he says, "You can't open it until I I don't know what the trick was, but you yeah. set it up this way, and tell me if I got it wrong. But you can't open it until I die." And then he does something with the box. And you describe how basically you were revulsed by this because it was it was a deception. And you knew it was a deception because you had seen him or heard him do the same thing before. And he had a different story about the box. It wasn't from his dad. Right. And it offended you in some Describe how you felt about it, why you felt so strong, so strongly, in fact, that I think you left the theater after the show and didn't even meet with Grayson. Yeah. Can you explain can you exp that to me? I've been wanting to ask you that question since I read the book. What, what was going on there? Um, yeah, I will, but I would like to know why it affected what 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 affected you about it. Uh, so well, it's be it's because this is not you know my area, right? And I've been trying to figure out how in in the context of deception mm -hmm. that a particular subset of deception would offend the deceiver, right? How in in the process like you say about art. It's more easy to understand in fiction, right? So there's a drama. It's all made up. It's all make-believe. It's all fiction. But you can have an untruth in fiction. And so that seems to me the best analogy. Right. A, a parallel. You found it to be an unnecessary, I think, an unnecessary untruth and a lie to the audience and a deception of the audience that was not necessary. Do, do I have that right? Yeah. Yeah. Basically, it, it is a, a untruth in service of an untruth. And I didn't know at the time that what I was reacting to was that, was this idea that that's not what I, I never saw my, you know, villains never see themselves as the villains, certainly. And I never saw myself as a deceiver. Um, you say, you say in the chapter, mm -hmm. I did my homework. Yeah. You, you say, quote, I'm not interested. So maybe this helps in the explanation. Yeah. You say, quote, I'm not interested in deceiving people. Yeah. But you also refer to yourself as a, as a deceiver. Uh, uh, just to help people with for context. No one knows <laughs> right. what you call me. Um, right. Uh, I don't. I've been struggling with that. You know, it's very difficult to when so much is placed on the intention of uh, like no one ever called, you know, Picasso a deceiver or, you know, Hemingway a deceiver. Like these are not known as deceiver. You know, they're either artists or writers or whatever. And but like magician or conjurer, these are all synonymous with deception like you can't have that without the other and so i have i understand that but for me it wasn't i didn't realize that what i was after for whatever reason what i was after wasn't deception it was deception as a means to an end and that end should be truth of some sort and finding it and finding it by means of of you know of the antipode like finding there you know there are only some some lights that you can see in darkness and sometimes a light is easier to see in darkness. And I think I was searching for light in dark places or figuring out how to, to use darkness to, to, to kind of expose a light of some sort. And I realized I couldn't do that. Uh, or I had picked up the wrong tool 
uh, in my head. I had, I realized, oh my gosh, I'm not interested in deceiving people. Uh, and yet I've spent all of these years learning how to do that. So it was really a moment. It was an existential crisis. It was a moment of what am I doing with my life spent? You know, at that time, I think it was like seven or eight years like dropped out of school to learn this on such a deep level, deeper as deep as anyone would study anything in this world. And then kind of having all of that collapse in one moment and realizing this is not what I want to do with my life. And I didn't have a model for it. And the person that I thought that I thought was my model turns out to not be. And so everything just gets flattened in that moment. And it's sort of like, and now what? My conversation with Derek Delgadio continues after this. So people should understand that there's a lot in the book about your activities with some unseemly folks. And this is some of the most page-turning storytelling in the book, where you get involved in world, you know, the world of con men mm. and poker games and card cheats. And I think I learned a lot of terms, by the way. The footnotes are very, very well. Okay. I actually, I usually don't like footnotes, but the little explanations of what you were a bust out dealer. Is that the right? Yeah. It's, I mean, that's the closest term that there is to, right. to what I did. Yeah. So there was a period of time and re- everyone should recall that, that my prior profession was prosecutor. So I'm looking at some of this stuff and it's not just sort of deception. It's not audience deception. Laws were potentially, hypothetically, allegedly being broken. Please, please, I'm, this is what I've been fascinated <laughs> to hear from you. I feel like I feel like maybe a, a law or two a law. had been broken in Colorado. I, I presume that you have good counsel, and you've checked out the statutes of limitations, and that you're good, and uh, and this is not hurting you in any way. We'll go with that. But you talk about this, so you have all these skills, and one use to which you can put these skills is one is you can entertain an audience. The other is you can help bad guys make a lot of money by cheating at poker. How, how, and you, you and you use two words when you get to this point in the book. You say, you know, you, you reach the line. Mm. You say it's more like a ledge. Mm. Yeah. And this goes back to the title, right? Yeah. Because you had a self-perception about yourself, right? Are you a moral person? Do you do, you know, upstanding things? And you didn't think you would do something like this, and then you did. Right. How did you think about that? Well, the truth is, I don't know that I thought about it that much in terms of morality uh, at the time, because I trained my entire uh, life, or at least adult life at that point, to do something. I, or I gained skills that, that seemed to have no value in this world, that I was reminded had no value in this world by the world in which I lived. And then you find yourself in a circumstance where it is literally valued both by the people who are employing you and also financially. Like it is, there is, there is a currency to what you do. And there's a, this is very, probably very difficult to understand for, for people who are really, it might be hard for everyone to understand. I don't know, but there is an integrity to using the things that I had learned to do what they were intended for. Because I had spent all these years learning how to essentially cheat uh, at cards, but never used it. I always just had this ability and I had it 
for myself uh, because I liked the exploration of technique the way that someone might enjoy uh, exploring classical music and wanting to be a virtuoso at a piano or at the cello. That was for me was a deck of cards. And the most difficult, most elegant moves were the cheating moves because they had to simulate real life in a way that was unlike anything else or as much as, as you could. So I, I had these things that I learned and no place to use them. Uh, and then finally there was a place where I could use them. And there was an honesty to that, that, that I hadn't felt before. There was an honesty in the dishonesty. Yeah. Again, well, going back, it's all, it's all, it's all murky, right? It is. And there's an honesty and a dignity and integrity in, in using the thing. I'm morality aside, I'm just in, in using the tool for the job, creating the ability to do this and then using it for the thing that it was intended. Uh, there's a satisfaction in that that goes beyond winning money. It, it is, it is, I'm, you're, you're scaling the mountain that you, you wondered <clears throat> you could, you could climb. You know, you're saying something that's, that's just reminding me of a conversation I had about another book written by a, a, an actual philosopher who taught me in college and who I had on my podcast <clears throat> not too long ago. And he talks about meritocracy. Mm, yeah. And we all, <clears throat> you know, we, we give lip service to meritocracy, but even if you had a meritocratic America, it's still unjust for various reasons, one of which is the following. And what you just said reminded me of what he pointed out in his book. And that is, yeah, you can say Michael Jordan, you know, deserves what he has and is entitled to what he has, depending on which verb you want to use, because he's the best at what he does. But he happens to be really good at something that, you know, American society and capitalism values. Yeah. Surely, surely there's a person who is just as good as Michael Jordan at badminton or in stacking golf balls. Yeah. or in some other such thing, or in card tricks, you know, the Michael Jordan of that is not rewarded. So given your, your place in that sort of rubric of, of, of capitalism and how we reward stuff, what, what do you think about meritocracy? I totally agree with that. And it go, I'll go one even further in that if you have a craft where the better you do it, the more invisible to the world it becomes, the more challenging it becomes to get credit for what you do. As you know, the more spectacular Michael Jordan got at basketball, the easier it was for us to see that. But by nature of sleight of hand and deception, the better I am at it, the less you see. And so it's even harder, even in a meritocracy, it's even more difficult when you've chosen a, a craft that renders you invisible to the world. Uh, which is why you see, which is why you see people adding uh, flourishes to their work or, or, performing the secrets and performing the deception by still, but still trading on it and withholding the information. They have to be able to show you that they're working and that they're good at what they do, but they have to let you know that by making the, the, the secrets decorative in some way. So Bernie Madoff, one of the you know world heavyweight champions in history of deception, mm -hmm. illegal deception. And a line in the book made me think about that. And I just, I wonder if you have a thought about it. When you're the bust out dealer and you're looking for that moment when you're going to change out the deck or do something, you know, do some funny business. And it's a great line. And you don't know if the people at the card table are onto you or not onto you. Yeah. And you're and one time you get lucky because someone spills uh, spills a drink and you do the funny thing that you do. But you're not always good. Someone's not going to spill a drink every time you need to do sure. your funny business. And you say, quote, cheating under watchful eyes requires confidence. Yeah. End quote. And I wonder if you have any thoughts about people like Bernie Madoff and how 
confident he must have had to be. I mean, I guess there's an open question as to how watchful the eyes of the Securities and Exchange Commission were, but there are a lot of watchful people. Does your experience cause you to have a certain view of, of people who do that kind of thing? Yes. It is a mindset that I think transcends any sort of craft. It is a belief system of how this world functions and an entitlement that some people either are born with or develop over the years. The, the puppeteer in the book, you know, the, the allegory of the cave is, is the most important aspect of this book for me. And I wouldn't have written it had I not had I had I not found a way to talk about the, these stories in a way that that frames it in a larger context uh, that people could relate to the rest of the world, and that someone like Bernie or what we experienced over the last four years is kind of the pinnacle of that sort of deception, and it takes it, it takes a special it takes I mean you have to dehumanize others in a way that I, I wasn't able to do. And didn't, I'm glad, you know, glad that I've never been able to do that. Um, but you, you also, these people understand that, I guess, I guess the ultimate point is it's not, it's not deception to them. It's, it's, craft, it's belief. It's yeah. It's crafting truths and the arrogance to believe that you can create a new truth uh, just by uttering it and just by saying it enough and just by the conviction of, of, of your own belief or, or at least projection of that belief um, that others will start to also believe it. And it does, it does work. I mean, we, we saw it happen. I mean, uh, you talk about watchful eyes. We were all watching over the last four years. Uh, you know, and how much more could we possibly watch corruption and deception occur? And yet, what happens? And I, I don't know enough about the, you know, the cogs and wheels of the, of the legal system of how that works like you do, but I, I do know. Right, but you, but you do know the d dynamic of, I mean, you do the things you do. It's in front of an audience. And, right. And, and some of the things, you know, when you were watching those tapes, your sort of version of YouTube, it's not even like, except for the examples um, where there was a person who was trying to be the anti-fraud guy mm. and he was, he was showing multiple camera angles so you could see what the fraud was. But if right. you have a straight, straight on view, even if you can pause it frame by frame, you can't see the deception because it's all done out in the open. Right. And some of what's happened in the last four years is being done out in the open. And in some ways, people will believe their eyes more when that is true. Here's one, here's one thing you said since you mentioned the last four years. You said um, when the prior president was running for office in 2016, Quote, the Democrats think this is a game. Mm. It, it isn't, end quote. What did you mean by that? Yeah, I think the full quote was I, 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 I tweeted this. I said, I said, yeah. I used to rig card games for a living and I would watch people come back night after night uh, and lose again and again. But they didn't lose because uh, we followed the rules of the game and they didn't. We lost because or they lost because it wasn't a game. It just looked like one. And Democrats think it's a game. Uh, that just comes from from watching people essentially stack the deck and then watching Democrats pony up to the table and, you know, and, and, and buy in again and, and sit down and play. There are no rules uh, to, to these people, to, uh, to the others, you know, the, to the people who, who sit on the other side of things. But they understand that we play by the rules as 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 good Samaritans, as good people, people who law abiding citizens and 
people who are moral and just, they understand that we want to live by those rules and they are smart enough to pretend to play by those rules and use them as if they are the ones upholding them. But they don't matter to be, you know, Ted Cruz doesn't give a about the rule of law. He just doesn't. It's, it's all horse It's performance. Uh, and, and, and anyone who agrees with him and Trump and all those people, they don't actually care. They perform that they care uh, so that they can push their agenda forward. I don't know if the same is true for Democrats. Uh, they at least push agendas that seem to help people or want, they, they care about others and other, you know, the idea of others and helping others and things like that. The politics aside, uh, at least the agendas are in line with something that I can understand um, and humanity is kind of at the forefront of all of it. But this recent thing of them, uh, of the Democrats adding um, Supreme Court justices is the first time in a long time where I've seen them actually do something that is is in line with something Republicans might do in a way that I uh, applaud. I, I think it's absolutely what they should do. And because, you know, if, if the shoe were on the other foot, they wouldn't think twice about it. You know, I think about Merrick Garland and they don't care, but they need you to believe that they care about, and it's the right. same with the card table, you know? We, we, there yeah. were, there was no, the rules at the card table uh, didn't really matter. I was cheating, you know? You don't need, the, it doesn't matter. You're going to give me the money at the end of the night because you think you're playing poker, but I need you to believe that you're playing poker in order for me to take your money. It, without that framework, I can't get you to sit down and show up and, let me fleece you. So it's this bizarre thing of performing the rules. Your statements just now made me wonder, do you think you would be a decent political consultant based on the experience you have? Yeah, absolutely. I've been trying yeah. to talk to people for a long time. I can, I can set you up with some folks. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, know, I know a couple folks. Yeah, 100%. I've been... But, tell, so, but that's, that, I, that had not occurred to me when I, when I read your book. Should that make us hopeful or cynical about politics that you would be a good political consultant. And I mean that with great respect. No, 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 no. I, I, yeah, I, I, I understand. Um, it is the way it's always been. So I don't know that it's, it's, um, you know, you could read a book about propaganda from a hundred years ago and it's the same as what's happening today. So I don't know that it changes. So you do need people who understand how they think. And I spent my life learning from those people. Uh, and, and, and whether it was a different context, it doesn't really matter. Uh, the rules of engagement and deception are the same. You see it in, you know, I talk about, uh, I've talked about like strategic ambiguity about, it doesn't matter if what I say is true or not. I just need to be able to make people think that what you say is false, false. or, or there's, or there's no, like people like Gary Kasparov, who, mm -hmm. you know, has a lot to say about Vladimir Putin and propaganda makes the point that people forget. And I think this is the point you're making. The issue is not what is true and what is false. The issue for the propagandist and the tyrant is to make the world believe you, you can never know yeah. what's true or not true. So everything is possibly true and everything is possibly false. It's not the case that this fact that you state that my opposition states is false and I need to demonstrate it. That's not my goal. My goal is not to prove you to be wrong. My goal is to, is to prove that anything anybody says can be false and you can't know it. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And so I think, I think there needs to be a new discussion around how we talk about truth. I think we need to approach it more like we approach climate change in that it's a crisis and that we are now, you know, in an era where anyone is, is, is capable of, of having a platform and saying things and, 
and putting, you know, misinformation out there. And we need to, I think it's okay to talk about the subjectivity of truth and not have it be a negative thing. I think it's okay to put the responsibility. uh, I think if we talk about truth as a thing, that's just fact or fiction and true and false in this binary, we abdicate our responsibility that we are shaping truth together collectively at any given moment, whether it's you and I between us of what we decide is true or with the rest of the world collectively. Um, And I think that the more humanity we can inject into that conversation, the more that it becomes a nuanced conversation that isn't just about fact or fiction. It becomes about what's, what's the most decent humane thing for, for us as a people. Um, I, I could talk to you for another hour. I have, I have many more questions to ask. I have questions for you too. So hopefully. We'll oh boy. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'll take the fifth. So a moral man, a moral man, a moral man. It's unclear, but that's the point of the book. Uh, congratulations on it. It's excellent. People should buy it, read it, uh, and watch your show. Thank you uh, so it's, much. it's been a real treat. It's been a real treat, sir. For me, too. Thank you for doing this. I appreciate it. My conversation with Derek Delgadio continues for members of the Cafe Insider community. To try out the membership free for two weeks, head to cafe.com slash insider. Again, that's cafe.com slash insider. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Derek Delgaudio. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet, or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to staytunedatcafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by Cafe Studios and the Vox Media Podcast Network. Your host is Preet Bharara. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The senior producer is Adam Waller. The technical director is David Tattashore. The CAFE team is Matthew Billy, David Kurlander, Sam Ozerstaden, Noah Azulai, Nat Wiener, Jake Kaplan, Jennifer Korn, Chris Boylan, and Sean Walsh. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.